Hi, I'm Kat Stewart, partner in the HR practice at Eaton Bridge Partners. I'm so delighted today to be joined by Cecily Sondergaard-Nielsen. After a number of get-togethers, we thought it'd be absolutely fantastic to share some of the conversations that we've been having. And I'm delighted to say that we have come up with a four-part podcast series called Women in Leadership, Mind the Confidence Gap. So welcome to our first episode. Today, we're going to be talking about imposter syndrome. So hello, hello, welcome. How are you? Good, thanks. Really happy to be here. Yeah, and it's been a few weeks of in the making, so I'm so excited. Um, do you want to just give me a quick overview about you? Sure. So I'm Cecilia Nilsson. I uh, run a small leadership consultancy called CN8, uh, whose mission it is to get more women, uh, more diverse leadership into senior positions uh, in this world, because I think we really need it. So that's um, that's what I do now. Previously, I was a an HR director, global HR director. I worked all over the world, really. Um, started out in Denmark and then went to the Middle East and then developed a bit of an, an Africa specialism, worked across Sub-Saharan Africa for, gosh, 10 years, um, and then branched out recently to, um, to do my own thing. And that's how we know each other, obviously, from the HR world. But what made you leave the big financial services, big job to go at it yourself? I, I have asked myself that several times. So, so I guess the first thing is lockdown happened. And like a lot of other people, I was suddenly sitting at home <laughs> with a lot of time to think. And some of the thoughts that came up were, you know, is this really what I want to do? Is this, I love how Glennon Doyle says that. I don't know if you read her book, Untamed, but she says, you know, is this the truest, most beautiful version of life? Yeah. And um, and I came to the conclusion that it wasn't. <laughs> I was um, I was pretty run down from ten years of traveling like crazy and working you know working super hard. And I love my job, right? I've had an incredible career. I've been given some fantastic opportunities, but I think I was just at a point where I I needed something else. Um, and then there was the whole lockdown piece, right? Now I'm sitting here, how long is it gonna last? Uh, how am I gonna handle it? I'm super extroverted. I'm used to being out and about all the time. And so what I did was I called a friend of mine who's coach because I figured, you know, if you have a problem with your tooth, do you call a dentist? And um, if you have this kind of issue, maybe, you know, you call a coach. So I did, and she started coaching me. Um, and that had a whole lot of initially unintended, <laughs> but wonderful consequences. Yeah. So what does that look like now for you, now you've started? Yeah, so so maybe one step back before we sort of go forward. So, so you know, really I, I hired her to just help me figure out how to think about the whole lockdown piece in my life and all of that, right? And then she really helped me see that a lot of the thoughts I had about what I should be doing and what good looks like. And, you know, I had this whole entrepreneurship is scary. It's too risky. I grew up in quite a conservative environment that that was, those were really just thoughts and I could choose. And, and it just opened some doors that I didn't know were there. And because it was such an impactful experience, I thought, well, let me go and get what she's, you know, I want those skills. Um, and I've already done, you know, I've got a master's in leadership development. I've got um, coaching training from Ashridge, but this was something else. So I did this advanced course. And um, as part of that, I, 
had to coach clients pro bono, you know, for free on the side, but lots of clients. And for some reason, I, I got all these senior women coming to me and I, um, I started seeing that they all had some of the same issues. There was sort of, there were themes, right? Barriers, blockers. They seemed to come up against the same things. And I seemed to be developing the skills to be able to help them with some of those things. And then I was hooked, right? So then that felt like purpose all of a sudden. And, and that is then what I decided to do. Um, so yeah, so now I run this coaching practice or this leadership practice and I work not exclusively. I've got some incredible male clients, but you know, I work with a lot of senior women on helping them figure out, you know, what, what a fuller, truer version of themselves look like at work, you know, as a leader, but also in life. So what does that look like now? So the, so the work is, it's really about stripping back a lot of conditioning. So what I see a lot is that, you know, women, I talk about women because that's where I have the most experience, right? So women are still largely underrepresented in most industries. And so what we do as female leaders often is to model our careers, um, our leadership, you know, our aspirations on the men around us, you know, and there are a lot of wonderful men out there and nothing against men. Um, I just like a little more balance, but anyway, so, so, you know, so you have all these women who then start modeling how they behave and what they want on, on their male bosses, men who are typically a different generation, often a different race. And in the process, they, they start becoming a lesser version of those men rather than the best version of themselves, if that makes sense, right? And I think it, so much is lost in the process. And when we think about diversity and inclusion, we can talk about that in a bit. Um, so, so the work that I do is really to, to kind of pause that process and go, hang on, if you stop trying to be like somebody else and you start thinking about what the real version of you looks like, what, you know, what's your voice? What are your values? How, how do you lead? what does that look like? And then step in, you know, start stepping into that. And typically the results get a lot better and, and people become more successful because ultimately, I mean, you can imagine we are better at being ourselves than someone else. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So amazing. So how does that relate to what we're going to talk about today? Yeah. So I, where our conversation started, I think, and, and what I really wanted to talk about is, is this confidence gap that I see in most of my clients. I never want to say all of my clients, even though it is actually, it is actually all of my clients, but I always want to allow for like, maybe it's not everyone, right? We hate generalizing. So, and it relates to this point about being yourself and showing up as yourself. So, so I always think that personal examples are quite helpful. So if you're okay, I'm going to, I'll start on a personal note and we can take it from there. So I spent, quite a big portion of my career working in finance and I loved it had some really great jobs but it had it had this really peculiar effect on my self-confidence and I didn't realize until it had been going on for a while so so before going into finance I had this whole corporate career um, as an as an HRD traveling all over the world um, working you know in the Middle East and in Africa every nationality you know and I was, 
I think I always did well. I was always a high performer, seemed to be going really, really well. And then I moved into finance and, um, and suddenly I was this, I was sort of the odd one out, right? So I was, you know, I'm a leadership specialist. I'm a human behavior specialist, HR person. And there I was in the sea of bankers and, and traders. And it was, I'd obviously been hired from my different perspective, right? So credit to the, you know, to the firms there. But when I showed up, I'd go into meetings and I'd come in with like all my opinions and my data, like guns blazing, and and then nothing. Right. So more often than not, I'd be met with like confused stares or just awkward silence, sometimes sort of like aggressive disagreement. And this happened a lot. And, and you know, I try and change my angle and nothing really seemed to work. And the weird thing that I realized afterwards was that my first reaction wasn't to question the environment, right? The readiness of the environment or the culture or the people around me and whether they really wanted this. My first reaction was to question myself. So I, I went to, oh my God, it's been 15 years. It's always been great, but maybe there's something wrong with me. It's probably me, right? Like maybe I've finally been found out. I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, And, and so I tried to, and then I started trying to make myself more like them, right? Maybe if I was just more like a banker, I would, I would be successful. But of course, what happens is you then know you're less and less successful because you're less and less you. It just doesn't work. But it's like boiling a frog. I think it doesn't happen overnight. It, it, it happens slowly. And by the time you realize it, it's too late. Anyways, what's, what I think kind of saved me is I started talking to other senior women. And they almost all said the same thing. Everyone walked around with this nagging kind of, what if I don't know what I'm doing? What if I haven't read enough? What if I haven't prepped enough? What if I am not enough? What if I need to be different? Um, And so people work harder and harder and harder trying to get to this magical enough place. But the thing is... it's not real, right? It's not, it doesn't exist. There is no line that you cross where suddenly you, you've done enough and you feel good about yourself. And so, I mean, some, some research will tell you that seven out of 10 women um, experience burnout at some point in their careers. And I think it's linked to this, just trying to be something that we aren't instead of focusing on being what we are and honing that. And yeah, sorry, that was a bit of a long speech. No, I think it's excellent. And I think trying to be somebody else or trying to be someone else's voice or try to say what you think they want you to say or what they want to hear is exhausting Mm. and you're not being yourself. But I suppose my question is, where does that come from then? Why why are we the ones questioning ourselves and not looking at that external environment? Why are we putting it down to us? It's such a good question. And I'm sure there are lots of different answers, right? It's like, of course, there are environments where this doesn't, you know, happen. But if we sort of stick to stick to the story, I think it's a number of things. I think there's still a lot of bias 
in the system. And I think that a lot of our leadership models are based on white male leadership because for a really long time, those were the leaders, right? So, so if you think about it, the workplaces that most of us go into were set up, designed, thought out by our grandfathers a couple of generations ago for their peers and their friends and themselves. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that was just, that was the reality of the day. But then you start to, to think about the fact that two generations isn't really that long if you're trying to create, you know, systemic, sustainable cultural change, right? So I think that's a big part of it that we don't realize how much bias there is in that sense. One of the ways by way of example, it shows up is around confidence. Uh, and I read such an interesting piece of research um, the other day that says, you know, male leaders are rewarded for their confidence and they're actually rewarded for their confidence more than they're rewarded for their competence, which is obviously not great, but a fact whereas women are mostly punished for it. So there's always some kind of issue. So in this particular um, study, they were saying that, you know, white women are often told that they don't have enough confidence um, and women of color are often told that they have too much confidence. And you see, there's always some issue, right? Because we can't get it right. Because if the model is men and I'm not a man, I'm not going to be able to get it right. It's impossible, right? I can't. It's a it's a losing battle. And so what we see is it leads to all these really damaging coping mechanisms. And we end up spending energy on stuff that isn't constructive, um, that doesn't lead anywhere. So um, I don't know if you've seen this. It's gone viral. Lily Singh, the American what is she comedian actress, did a TED talk recently uh, that I really loved and in it she says you know as women we spend so much time fighting for a seat at the table that by the time we get to the table and the seat is wobbly and full of splinters we think we should just feel grateful um and we and you know so so we we try to fix the seat we try to fix ourselves so that it's more comfortable and less splintery and less wobbly but the truth is that you know the seat is never going to fit because it wasn't built for us. And ultimately, when I think about the work that I'm doing now and the work that I wanna do, is really about building more diverse tables. You know, we keep the tables we have, but I'd like for us to have more tables where we can sit more comfortably and more naturally, if that makes sense. Yeah, everyone has their own chair, no splinters. Right, ideally, ideally, yeah. You mentioned damaging coping mechanisms. Can you just tell me what that means and what that looks like? Yeah. So in my work, um, we sort of talk about four traps that women fall into. Um, and again, I'm sticking to women because that's what we're talking about. And it's where I do a lot of work, um, which is not to say that it doesn't affect other groups. I'm sure it does. Uh, I know it does, actually. So anyway, so there are four traps. So the first and most famous one is imposter syndrome feeling like a fraud, um, questioning my own abilities, feeling like I don't belong. The second one is perfectionism, this idea that if I could just get it right, if I could just figure out how to be perfect, how to be right, I would feel better and everything would be better. Um, and that looks a lot like overwork, right? Um, the third one is validation seeking. So we spent too much energy 
trying to get others to validate our choices because we haven't developed the self-confidence to validate ourselves. Um, again, it's rooted in this idea that we're wrong, right? Other people are, are righter um, than we are. And the fourth and final is people-pleasing, which is a worthiness thing really, right? It's about thinking that other people's needs and wants are more important than ours. And so we spend our energy trying to do right by others instead of doing right by ourselves. They're obviously all connected. Um, but yeah, that's sort of, those are the four. So let's take imposter syndrome. Can you give me an example of what that means? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's a, there's a really good article in, in, in the Harvard Business Review. I think it's from 2021 um, by Mushika, Mushika Toshin and Jolian Burry. Um, and they, they really address some of the issues with, with imposter syndrome very well, I think. So, so imposter syndrome is about doubting your abilities, right? And feeling like a fraud. And I think by now we know that it mostly affects high achieving women. Um, what um, a lot of people don't know is that it originally, it comes out of a 1978 study um, that completely ignores uh, context, which we now learn is not so helpful, but let me get to that. Um, so obviously since then it's taken on a whole life of its own. I think it's hard as a woman to go onto LinkedIn these days and not see something about imposter syndrome, right? How to fix imposter syndrome, how to overcome imposter syndrome, you know, what is your experience with imposter syndrome? So it's become very mainstream. But what the article points out is that we, we might've taken something that's actually quite normal, you know, feeling like you don't belong because you're the only one who looks like you in the room is normal, right? That's not you. And, um, and mild performance anxiety, also normal. We want to do well. We want to achieve. Right? So we've taken these things and then we pathologize them for women specifically, which is problematic, right? I mean, think about the term. So imposter carries this like, hint of criminality, right? You're a fraud, you're fraudulent. And then syndrome like how sort of subtly reminiscent of, of you know, 19th century medical diagnosis, you know, female hysteria. So, so, you, so, you know, so now there's something wrong with me. I'm a fraud, I'm a criminal, I'm, I'm sick. And as if that's not bad enough, you then put the owners on the women to kind of fix themselves, right? Which is what all these courses and articles do, like how to overcome this, how to fix this. But actually, think about everything we talked about here, right? The issue isn't I think more often than not, the issue isn't the woman. I actually think the issue is never the woman. The issue is the context, the culture, the environment. There are very good reasons why minority employees and leaders are lacking in confidence. Um, and those are the things we need to address. And if we don't do that, we can talk about diversity and inclusion forever and ever, but we aren't going to get more senior diverse people into senior positions. That all makes perfect sense. And I felt like that and lots of women that I speak to every day, I can tell that have been through it or feel it. But what would you say the solution is? So, 
So I think it's twofold. Um, and what we're trying to fix is obviously, you know, we can hire diversity, but then what will happen over time as we've just discussed is either, you know, you begin to adapt in order to fit in or you leave because you don't want to adapt to fit in either way you lose the thing that you were trying to hire. Right. So I think, so the solution is twofold. So we have to fix, fix, uh, we have to fix our leaders and, and our cultures. Um, we have to train the rest of the company to welcome inclusion and to understand the biases and to spend much more time and energy making sure that the people who don't naturally belong feel like they can belong. Um, and you'd really think that we, I mean, there's a lot of good work going on, right? But I, I hear these stories every day. I feel like every time I take on a new client or talk to a, especially a woman, I hear stories. And I, I spoke to a business the other day that um, had issues with its culture. They had a lot of derogatory comments being made about women. And I, um, I suggested that they consider doing some bias training, right? I know there are lots of opinions on bias training, but you've got to start somewhere. And I think there's some really good options out there. And I was told by a woman nonetheless, which really made me want to cry, that there was no point in them doing that because the people who needed it the most weren't going to show up for the training. And I thought, wow, you know, so this is where we are. Um, anyway, so that is not that is not a problem I, I'm going to fix, I think, um, right now. There are other people who are better um, better place to do that. But the second part is really supporting underrepresented uh, employees and leaders and understanding how they're affected by the biases and helping them, you know, helping stop it from being being such a limiting factor. And that's really the conditioning work that that we talked about earlier. Um, as an example, I have a client, fantastic client, who um, she was told at the beginning of her career that she had the wrong background for what she wanted to do and that she'd need to work harder than, than everybody else. Um, and because she's a woman of color, it played right into the narrative that she would indeed, you know, need to work harder than everybody else. And so she did. So for 10 years, she pulled all-nighters and just, you know, worked incredibly hard. And now she's this rock star. She's done so well for herself. She's an amazing woman. But when I met her, she still carried this belief that she would indeed need to work harder, you know, that she needed to work harder than than everybody else. And so she'd go into rooms with the sense that she hadn't done enough, that she hadn't said enough, started researched enough, that she didn't know enough, even though she knew more than anybody else, you know, anyone else in that room. And of course it, you know, it affected her, it held her back. Because if you feel like you're not enough, you're not gonna speak up, right? You're not gonna show up in your like full capacity with your, with a strong voice um, because you're questioning yourself. And the thing that we're not taught that I wish we were is that when we think a thought over and over again, it becomes a belief. Right? So we have thousands, tens of thousands of thoughts every day. Most of them are subconscious, but a lot of them are conscious. Um, but when we, when we start thinking something and keep thinking it, it becomes subconscious, it becomes a belief, and we stop questioning it. it we think it's an objective reality, you know, I need to work harder. It's just how it is, right? Um, but it is just a thought and you can change it. And 
if you are listening to this and watching this, I would actually urge you to try it as an exercise. You know, take out a piece of paper and write down the answers to these questions. What do I believe about myself? What do I believe about my life? What do I believe about my ability to create anything that I want? And then see what comes up. Just look at, look at it, just like write it down without thinking too much and then have a look and, you know, take a moment to, to think about whether these are beliefs that are actually helping you or beliefs that are holding you back. Because if they are beliefs that are holding you back, like I can't do this because I never went to the right university, I can't do that because I'm not a finance person or I can't, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that we talk around. And, consider replacing it with something more helpful, right? Which is not something you do overnight. It's a little bit like going to the gym, you build muscle and then over time, you know, you make changes. And what happened to this particular client, which is so great, is that by the time she, she realized that she was still holding on to this and then got rid of it, she started showing up completely differently, right? So she would walk into the rooms like she knew enough her voice changed, her results changed because she made space for something bigger for herself. You mentioned in um, one of our evenings over many glass of wine um, that I think it was a president, was it Obama? Yes. He talked about how having only one female on that, in that boardroom versus maybe two or three is more powerful. So more voices, more female voices help those individuals, help the voice become louder. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I think I think there are actually there are two separate stories and they're both good and I'm so glad you brought it up. So one is um, a dear friend of mine who is a, quite a well-known chair um, and I haven't asked if I could quote him, so let me leave him anonymous for now and we can we can maybe include him later, but he always says that on his boards, um, where he starts to see a real difference is the number three. So you have one woman and it's great, but it doesn't change the dynamic. You have two, obviously better than one, it still doesn't really change the dynamic. By the time he gets to three, there is a significant change in in how the whole board shows up, but also in how much, you know, the women then lean in and speak up. Um, and the Obama thing is um, the women on his top administration had a, supposedly I've read this, they had a system where if one of them made a point, um, the others would reinforce. So, and that was just what was agreed and how they operated because they, even even on Obama's team, which is almost unbelievable and it makes you wonder what it's like everywhere else, um, there was an issue with them being cut off and and you know people talking over them. And so they they just put this in place where if one of them made a point, someone else would make the same point and they would just keep reinforcing it until they were sure that the room had actually really taken it in, which is interesting, I think. And I suppose coming back to the topic and the whole point of this around confidence you know you'll feel more confident if someone reinforces your message or agrees with your message 
and listens to you. So if our listeners today are maybe listening and thinking, this is happening to me, or I know somebody, or I know somebody at work that I'm sat next to, who could potentially benefit from these types of conversations, how do you think someone should go about approaching a coach? And what do they need to think about? Mm. So I'd say a couple of things. The first one is to understand what coaching does, because I do get some people who come to me and want mentoring and that's obviously okay. And I'm always happy to, you know, to share and to share my experience, but a coach will never tell you, a good coach will never tell you what to do. Right. So good, really good coaches are all about holding up a mirror to help you see what you, you know, your thoughts, your patterns, your beliefs, your habits, and the kind of results that they create in your life, and then help you change the things that you want to change based on where you want to get to. So it's a very, it's a very results oriented process. It goes very deep, but it is all about getting different results, which is also why the process shouldn't go on forever. It shouldn't become a crutch. It shouldn't become something that you need to rely on in order to make decisions for yourself. It's about giving you tools and teaching you how to tap into your own wisdom so that you go out into the world as a stronger, better version of you. So I think that's important to know before you start, you know, even thinking about that. And unfortunately, it's an unregulated industry. So there are a lot of not so great coaches out there, if I may be so blunt, um, or people who haven't received the appropriate training. I think it's a huge responsibility ethically. So try and find someone who's signed up, you know, to the relevant the International Coaching Federation's ethics standards and so on and so forth. Um, and then it's really all about trust. And I think, you know, have some consultations, have some conversations and see whether it clicks. Um, because if you don't trust this person to hold space for you while you go through your process, you aren't going to be able to get the results that you want to get. And so just trust your gut on that one. You don't have to like have a reason, but if it just doesn't feel right, you know, it's probably not right. Um, yeah. The other thing I would say is that it's not a one-off. I think, you know, some people go and they, they book one session and they think, you know, help me think about what I want to do with my career. I don't work with people for less than three months. Um, because I can't deliver the results that I promise in less than three months because that is just the amount of time it takes. It's a little bit like hiring a personal trainer and going to the gym and being like, I'm going to go lift for one day. Now, why, why don't I have muscle? Like, why hasn't my body changed? You're like, yeah, well, because it takes time to build muscle in the same way that it takes time to build new neural pathways. So those are a couple of the things that I would think about and for the rest of it. You know, you get a lot of, strategic byproducts so people come because they have a specific goal mostly right they want they want to start a business or they want a bigger job or they want to be more effective in their leadership or they want to you know raise 100 million or they whatever it is that they want and in that process they become more self-aware they become more trusting of their own instincts they build more confidence they end up suffering less because the harmful thoughts that we keep thinking over and over again you start to get rid of so there's a lot of it's um yeah, it's not just one clear like fix that you go through I think the whole series today um on confidence and mind the confidence gap it's all been about imposter syndrome today and hopefully the next one is going to be on 
perfectionism. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to seeing you in person again soon. Thanks, Kat. Thanks for having me and asking such great questions. It's uh, such an important topic and I'm just glad we're having a conversation. Thank you so much for listening and please join us again when we'll be talking about perfectionism. If you've enjoyed today and would like to listen to more senior leaders at Eaton Bridge, you can visit the Eaton Bridge podcast at Spotify or Apple Music.